feel the passion for God. Or if I were to use a subtitle for this message, I really love the Lord. Suggesting or implying that I'm not playing games about this. And that further suggesting that we live in a day and age when many people do play games. Especially when it comes to God. It's perfectly permissible in today's world. In fact, not only permissible, but encouraged. For you to do anything you want to and then go to church on Sunday. And do your religious devotion and get that checked off your list for the week. And then go back and be normal for the other six days. Normal, whatever that is. Today, as I talk about passion, I want to contradict that. The word passion, as we learned a couple of weeks ago, is from the old Latin word, pasio, that literally means to love so much or to want something so much that you hurt. I think of something that happened here years ago, and I hope he won't mind me. In fact, I know he won't because I know how much he loves his family, and his family, his daughter, if she's here, will be thrilled to hear this. Years ago, one of the young men in this church grew up here, who now heads up the podcast ministry. You've heard me refer to him, Jesse Cook. I just keep telling him he's the, the most valuable player of last year, because, I mean, those podcasts have gotten into 62 countries and 46 states. He, he devised all that, dreamed it up, put it out there, and that's, he's, he's the guy responsible for that. Well, I watched Jesse grow up, member of this church, family here. And then the day came when he married. And if I remember correctly, I performed so many weddings, I think I'm the one that performed the ceremony. <laughs> Amen. I did four in one day one time. I've done a lot of them through the years, baby. Amen. And sometime after that, Jesse and his wife have their first child. And I'm walking through the prayer room in between services, and Jesse is holding his newborn little baby girl, well, she's some months old now. And I stopped and congratulated him, and I said, man, they can, these little girls can wrap you around their little finger. I know I've got a daughter, right? And so Jesse looks back at me, and tears spring into his eyes, and he said, Pastor, I love her so much it hurts. Boy, did that speak to me. And I just used that as a teaching moment, and I said, now you know how God feels about you, Jesse. And when I did that, I mean, just something happened right there as we were together in that room, and it touched me, and my eyes teared up also. You want to know how much God hurt, loves you? So much it hurt. That's how much he loves you. That's passion. In today's world, it is permissible to have passion for anything other than God. Seriously. And yet what most people do not realize is there is a deliberate strategy, I believe, on the part of the enemy to try to undermine our passion. You know why? Because as I began a while ago, every breakthrough, often the unspoken component that made it happen is passion. Whether it's discovery of a medicine, a cure for HIV or cancer, computer technology, an iPhone, a Samsung Galaxy Note, whatever. The underlying driving force was somebody had passion. And when you read the Bible, the one thing that leaps out at you when you begin to look outside the normal parameters of just reading the text is that everybody you read that had a breakthrough in the Bible had one thing. They had passion. Passion. Whether it's the woman with the issue of blood, whether it's a Shunammite woman whose daughter is being raised from the dead, 
regardless of who it is, everybody, Bartimaeus, they had passion. Speaking of passion, it makes breakthroughs happen in the spiritual realm. Many times we have passion about things we don't even know we have passion about. You can live with passion until it so consumes you. The one thing that you need to know about passionate people is they're not balanced people. That's right. They're not normal. And this is one reason the world doesn't want you to have passion for God. They want you to be normal. Even though for them what's normal is really abnormal, they want you to be You got it? You can have passion and not even realize how strong your passion is. Like the, okay, I was blonde when I was a kid, okay, almost snow-headed. My daughter was blonde, so don't be offended. There are a lot of blondes here today if I tell a blonde joke, okay? Y'all going to help me out? Y'all going to let me, give me grace, amen, please? One day, a guy hears a knock at his door, goes to the door of the house. There's a blonde at the door, and she says, I'm trying to get through town. You have a nice house. I saw that, you know, you have a nice home. Do you mind helping me? I'll do any kind of work that you need me to do. I just need to get through town. I'm broke. I don't have any money, no food, no, no money for transportation. And he said, well, if you're serious, I need to paint the porch. And he gave her a can of green paint and said, here, if you'll paint it, I'll, I'll pay you. She said, how much? She said, $50 good? She said, yeah, that's good. He went inside, and she was left outside with a can of paint and a brush. And his wife said, honey, you know, that wasn't really fair. The porch wraps all the way around the house. It's going to take her three days. And you're only giving her $50. And he said, well, we can give her something when she gets done extra. But, I mean, she agreed to it. But to their amazement, 15 minutes later, there's a knock at the door. And he goes to the door, and it's a lady with a paintbrush and a half-full can of paint now. And she said, I'm finished. I finished your porch, and she said, and he said, how did you finish it so fast? She said, well, it wasn't that big. Oh, by the way, it's not a Porsche, it's a Lamborghini. (laughs) Help me, Jesus. Help me. You're going to find out real fast how much passion you have. I look at Amazon.com, and there's passion for everything these days. Seriously. There are hundreds of books with the titles passion in their title, or the word passion in their title. Hundreds. And I don't mean just passion as in romance. There are books with titles like, I mean, how-to books, hundreds of them, a passion for birds, a passion for books, a passion for cactus, a passion for chocolate. At least that one I understand. (laughs) A passion for fashion, a passion for fishing, a passion for flying, a passion for gardening, a passion for golf, a passion for hunting. There's even a book called A Passion for Mushrooms. Yeah, you know what they're doing with them, huh? (laughs) Not cooking either. A passion for needlepoint, passion for pasta, passion for ponies. There's even a book called A Passion for Potatoes, for Roses, A Passion for Shoes. We husbands have known about that for a long time, right? All of our wives have that one. There's even a book called A Passion for Steam. I still haven't figured that one out yet. You can have passion for anything and everything, just don't have passion for God. In fact, I can go to a rock concert 
or a political rally or a bas- baseball or basketball game or football next Sunday. Not, nothing wrong with any of these things unless you think that I'm trying to build a case for something by attacking something else. No, all those things are fun. Go to a baseball game, football game. Next Sunday, Super Bowl Sunday. And to show you, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. People are coming here next Sunday wearing their teams. They're, they're, they're representing. They're, they're wearing teams of their favorite jersey. You can, you can uh, um, it, it, the, the jersey, rather, their favorite team. You can, you can come and you can wear the jersey of your favorite team. And so if that's Broncos or Seahawks or whatever, that, that's cool. But if I go to a game, I watch the Super Bowl, my team's in it. I can shout, I can scream until I get hoarse, until I lose my voice, I can get excited. That's okay. Everybody is going to look at me and say, he's one of us. That's acceptable. Amen. If my team wins, I can jump up and down, I can dance, wave my hands in the air, shout, hey, hallelujah, amen. You know, and people will think that's cool. They'll say, he's a real fan. Go to church. And let somebody do that, and they say, watch out for him. He needs help. Don't have passion for God. In fact, next Sunday, I'll give you a little homework assignment. At the end of the game, watch the faces of those who have won. Watch their teams, uh, watch their team's fans out in the, in the bleachers. Watch them. They will be high-fiving. They will be cheering, celebrating late into the night. People are going to get intoxicated, get drunk. Their team won. On the other hand, watch the closing moments when the camera pans the field to the dejected countenances of the players who lost. Some of them will have tears streaming down their faces. You know what I'm saying is true. And not one person will think that's out of order. And as they pan back into the stadium, the bleachers, watch again. Because some of the fans will be crying. But that's okay. Our team lost. Everybody understands. That's acceptable. Yet go to the house of God. Get that worked up about God and somebody's going to call you a religious fanatic. Yet I want to ask you, who's done the most for you? Come on, help me out. Who saved you when you were lost and healed you when you were sick? Who put your marriage together when it was broken? Steam? Chocolate? Mushrooms? Who are you going to call when your back is against the wall? And you get a bad diagnosis or a call from the hospital in the middle of the night concerning a teenager? Who are you going to call then? David said, in my distress, I cried unto the Lord, and he heard me. Who are you going to call? Seahawks? And understand, I'm not even knocking them, as I'm saying. Not knocking mushrooms as long as all you do is cook with them. Because David had passion for God, David literally reached dimensions that no one else would have been able to go to, that he never should have achieved in his life. Because he had passion for God, he wanted to know God so much that it hurt. And when you can have that kind of passion, it will carry you places. Psalms 27 and verse 4 expresses just how much passion David had. 
when he said, One thing have I desired of the Lord that I will seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. You can read that and, and just think, oh, David wanted to go to church. No, that's not what he's saying. What you need to remember is according to Matthew 1 and the genealogy of Christ in which David is listed as a member. David was born of the tribe of Judah. There were 12 tribes in the nation of Israel. Only one of them was allowed to do this, dwell in the house of the Lord. It was the Levites. The others went to church once every quarter, three times a year, essentially. They went to the house of God. And even then, they participated, but outside. It was the tribe of Levi in the house of God that ministered to God personally. And David grew up as this little shepherd boy playing his harp on the hills of Judea. And three times a year, he went to to church with his father, Jesse, and he saw the priest, and this is what he said. I may be of the tribe of Judah, but God, I too want to dwell in your house. I want to know you. I want to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life and behold of your beauty and to inquire in your temple. Now, that was literally a a genetic impossibility in this sense that not having the genetic qualification of being a member of the tribe of Levi, he never should have been allowed to go there. Yet, when I look at the house of God, there were several things in the course of David's life that leap out at me that there is no way to explain based upon the fact that he was of the tribe of Judah that he ever should have been able to do without incurring severe harsh penalties. To be able to make this point more clearly understood, you need to know there were two kinds of laws in Israel. There were civil laws that were governmental in terms of instructing and informing society. Laws such as if you get caught stealing your neighbor's cow, you've got to give him seven for the one you stole. You remember that? Laws such as if you're burning garbage in your backyard and you set a fire and the wind comes up and blows the fire into your neighbor's field that he hasn't harvested yet and burns up his whole harvest, you have to recompense him for the loss of the crop and the damages of the crop being destroyed by your act of carelessness. Those were civil laws. Those were laws that were not so consequential. The worst among them would be the penalties incurred for such things as rape and murder. On the other hand, there was no such thing as a not serious law regarding worship. Every law that Israel had regarding worship was a law that if you violated incurred severe penalties, severe, severe enough that you lost your life. I'll give you several examples. You look at the scripture, you remember the two sons of Aaron, the first high priest of Israel. They offered strange fire to the Lord, the Bible says, and when they did, fire came from God and consumed them. I'm not talking about that people went and took them out and punished them. I mean, God himself said, I'm going to get rid of you. Now, what you need to know is there were two altars in the early tabernacle and in the temple. One was the brazen altar where they offered the sacrifice. The other was the altar of incense just before the veil. In the Bible, when they offered the altar, or rather the the burnt offering on the altar of 
uh, the brazen altar, the altar of sacrifice. They would burn and consume the animal, and as it was being consumed, the fat from its burning would drip onto the glowing red embers of coal and the heart of that altar, and they would burst into superheated flames. Now, what God wanted Israel to do was take these coals from this altar, glowing cherry red, and saturated with the burning fats and juices of the sacrificial animals. You take this and you put it upon the altar of incense, and that's what you use to burn the incense. Incense in the Bible always represented worship. What God is saying is, I want your worship, but I want it to contain some sacrifice. Don't want you to just come and offer me any old little thing. You better have some heart and passion in it. That's what that fat represented, meant, passion. And one day, the two sons of Aaron, they decided they didn't want to go get the coals from the fire of the altar at the brazen altar, the door of the tabernacle. They said, we'll offer fire from another place. Now, the Bible didn't say it was from a pagan temple or a fire from another altar to a heathen god. They just struck another fire. And the moment they started offering incense without any worship in it, fire came from heaven and consumed them. Whenever they offered this worship without sacrifice, they lost their lives. I think of a second occasion that demonstrate just how severe the penalties for violating or transgression or transgressing worship laws was. Uzziah, remember him? Uzziah, king of Israel, Isaiah 6. In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. It's this Uzziah I'm talking about. He died. Let me tell you why he died. Uzziah became king of Israel. And as king of Israel, he was point man for the entire nation, the one upon whose desk, the buck stopped. The proverbial buck stopped with him. He was the guy that God held accountable for the entire nation. And one day he got to thinking, if I'm being held accountable for the entire nation, I may not be of the tribe of Levi, but at least I can go into the temple just like the, the priest can. And so he went to the house of God. There was a temple by that time. They'd moved out of the tabernacle. He put on the priestly vestments called the ephod, and the priest came running and said, don't do that. Don't, 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 no, 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 wait, wait, don't do that. And he said, get out of my way. Who are you to tell me what I can and can't do? I'm the king. I've got the title. They said, yeah, you may have the title, but you don't have the experience and the anointing yet. And he said, move out of my way. And he went in and started acting like he was a priest. And the moment he did, leprosy smote him. And when he saw it, the priest hurried to push him out of the temple. And the scripture said he himself hurried to get out. Because death had started growing in him. And had he stayed, he would have died on the spot. As it was, he remained a leper until he died. And it was in the year he died that Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up. Uzziah, king, even his title did not enable him to go into the temple and permit him to, to transgress worship laws. I think of the third occasion where God demonstrates the severity of violating worship laws. Look at Belshazzar in the book of Daniel. He's a pagan king. His grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar, has invaded Israel 
destroyed Israel, carried away the golden vessels from the house of God that were dedicated and sanctified to the Lord. They've overrun the temple, destroyed the nation, carried Daniel and the three Hebrew children along with many others away into captivity. And now, years later, Belshazzar, who is a drunk, he's a pagan. He doesn't even know God. He's known for his wild parties. One night he calls a party, and while they're partying, he says, we're going to really push the edge tonight. Somebody go get me those gold vessels that Grandpappy Nebuchadnezzar took from the temple in Jerusalem years ago. <laughs> and they bring him the golden vessels, and he pours wine them, and he holds the wine up to drink it. And when he does, there's part of a man's hand that appears on the wall writing, meeny, meeny, tickle you farsen. Your weight in the balances is found wanting, and this night your kingdom is taken away from you. Whoa. The Bible says that he got so afraid, his knees knocked together. The wine goblet tumbled, tumbled out of his hand. Wine splashed everywhere. And that night, his kingdom was overrun by the Medes and the Persians, and they took his life before morning, showing you on three occasions that whenever you violate civil law, that's one thing. But if you violate worship law, hey, baby, that's another category altogether. You see what I'm saying? Yet David violated worship law time and time again on at least three occasions or at least for three different things. David violated worship law and was never called into accountability for that. One of those Jesus refers to in Matthew chapter number 12, verses 3 through 4. When Jesus said, haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God. He and his companions ate the consecrated bread. That's the show bread. The bread of God's presence. And this is what Jesus said, which was not lawful for them. And the next several verses, Jesus said, and God held them blameless. Whoa. Why does one get by and another doesn't? How come David running for his life, hides in the tabernacle. His enemies come, are looking for him. The priest says, can't help you. And they go on, and when they're gone, the priest says, okay, you can come out now. And David comes out, and the priest says, you better get going, guys. They may come back. And David says, I don't have strength to, to take another step. I'm dying. I've got to have something to eat. Do you have any bread? And the priest said, all we've got here is the bread of God's presence. And David said, bring it to me. And the priest said, but you don't, you don't realize, David, that that's a transgression. David said, I know it is, but bring me the bread. And he ate it, and God never charged him for that. Why? On another occasion, the very thing that caused Uzziah to be smitten with leprosy, David did and got by. Remember, they brought the Ark of the Covenant up from the temple of the Philistines. Dagon, the idol god, the false god, demonic spirit that the Philistines worshipped. They brought the idol, uh, brought the, the Ark of the Covenant from the temple of the idol Dagon, and it made it to Obed-Edom's house. Do you remember? And Obed-Edom's house was blessed for three months because the Ark of the Covenant symbolized the manifest presence of God. And when you get in the presence of God, everything you get, have gets blessed. Your shoes get blessed. Your clothes get blessed. Your refrigerator gets blessed. Your business gets blessed. Your investments get blessed. Amen. And David hears about it and decides to bring it up to Jerusalem. And he puts on the priestly ephod, the same thing that Uzziah would later do when there was a temple constructed. And David 
goes to bring the Ark of the Covenant back and walks six paces. What's this? Or dances. Six paces. One, two, three, four, five, six. The seventh, they stop and they offer a sacrifice. They literally offered thousands of sacrifices down that winding road that led into Jerusalem up finally to Mount Moriah where the temple had or the tabernacle was situated and where the temple would someday be built. David wore the priestly ephod, what caused Uzziah to be smitten with leprosy, and God seems to look the other way. Doesn't do anything. Does that ever make you ponder or wonder what's going on? And the other occasion is, you remember what I told you about this veil thing and the altar of incense and what happened to Aaron's two sons? Well, let me show you something else. David, when he gets the Ark of the Covenant there, they've already pitched the tabernacle tin. He goes in and sets it up, but he purposefully fails to put up the veil. He leaves the veil out. And instead what he does is surround the Ark of the Covenant with 288 worshipers, worshiping 24 hours a day, seven days a week. They did it in shifts. And David doesn't violate the law once. He does it every day for the rest of his life. He goes into the presence of God without a veil and worships God. Now, how egregious a violation is that? I'll tell you how bad it was. When the nation of Israel needed to get into the presence of God, only the high priest was allowed to go before the ark, and even then, only one time a year. I don't care who you were. You may have been somebody up here, and you may have somewhat seniority, and I'm of the tribe of Levi and all. I don't care who you are. You're not the high priest. You don't get to go. And even then, only once a year. And when he went, he was so careful. He, talk about fear and trepidation. He tied a scarlet rope around his ankle and played it out to the, the priest wouldn't even go in the, in the tabernacle. They stood outside. And he gave them the other end of the rope while he went in carrying the blood. And when he got to the veil, he would pull it back. And they could hear him walking because there were bales sewn into the bottom of his robe so you could hear the, the chiming of the bales. And he got there and he would pour the, ark, the, uh, the blood upon the Ark of the Covenant. And when he would pour the blood, if God forgave Israel, the fire, the Shekinah, the Shekinah of God, which was the blue flame that just magically hung suspended in midair between the wings of the cherubims on the back of the mercy seat, that fire leapt upon his breast and he was just energized by it and he begins to shake and tremble and as he's shaking, the rope is going crazy and the priests outside are feeling the just like that and the bells are ringing like mad and the priest would throw down the rope and run out and shout to the nation of Israel, we have heard the joyful noise meaning we have heard the sound that indicates our sins are forgiven. But if that priest went into the presence of God with violation in his heart, sin, you know what happened? That rope stopped moving, and he died, and they pulled him out. David went in not once a year and he wasn't even the tri of the tribe of Levi. He went in every day for the rest of his life. Now I'm getting ready to close. What made it 
possible and permissible for him to do that. There's only one thing that I can see, and that is David had passion. Passion for God that, that, that none of the others had. And, and then it dawns on me. Whoa, you got to catch this. This is heavy. you got to see this. It occurs to me that all of those limitations were not meant to just keep man away. God put him there because he only wanted people who were passionate to get close to him. God don't want anybody with a cold limb fish like handshake. I'm not talking about your real handshake. I'm talking about you think you can just serve him and just kind of coast along. Uh uh. If you're going to get close to God, you got to have something burning inside of your heart. You got to have passion. Well, somebody in the building shout amen right now. I'll explain it like this as I close Psalm 16 and 11. You will show me the path of life in your presence is fullness of joy. Where? Say it with me. In your what? Help me out here. Come on. In your what? Shout it out. In your what? Is what? Fullness. Say fullness. Fullness. What word did Paul say? Fullness. I want you to be filled with the fullness of God. Implying that some of us don't have fullness. We have some, but not fullness. In his presence is fullness. And at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. The inference is that if you get away from his presence and away from his right hand, there is a diminishment, there is a declining of the joy and the pleasure there is in serving God. Whoa. Which is why two people can come to the same service, sit on the same pew, side by side, the choir can sing the same song, the preacher can preach the same message, and one of them is blessed and the other goes home and says, it wasn't in the choir. Come on, it wasn't in the song. It wasn't in the preacher and it wasn't in the message. It was the fact that one was closer than the other one was. And in his presence there is fullness of joy. Woo! This is why during the course of the week, some people's lives are filled to overflowing. While others are going through their six-day-a-week thing, and then they're going to do their Sunday thing again next Sunday. Mm-hmm. I want to ask you, mushrooms done anything for you lately? Roses? Shoes? Seahawks? Come on, who's done something for you? How many of you have ever been in trouble and needed help and he showed up right when you needed him, when nobody else could help you? He came out in the midnight hour of your dilemma, walked into the middle of a situation and said, peace, be still. That's my God I'm talking about. That's my Jesus I'm referring to. I can't help but have passion for him. The way that I best know how to describe this is to tell you about the sun, S-U-N. Our universe would be a very cold place. Our planetary system would not be able to sustain light. Were it not for the sun, which is located at the center of our universe. Amen. 
there are eight planets. Now, I know some of you old school folks, you were taught like me, there were nine. Since those days, Pluto is no longer considered a planet. Did you know that? That's true. Read, look it up. Pluto's not a planet anymore. Neptune is now the last planet. Pluto is a planetoid. <laughs> Just so you will be informed. The surface of the sun is very hot. But you know what is almost three times hotter? The interior of the sun. At its core, it is 27 million degrees Fahrenheit. Do you know how hot that is? 27 million degrees is so hot that at that temperature, nuclear fusion is going on all the time. The sun is literally one great big nuclear reactor. But by the time you leave the center of the sun, which is 27 million degrees, and get to the surface of the sun, the temperature has declined from 27 million degrees to 10 million. Still hot enough to burn your biscuits. Amen. But it's 17 million degrees cooler. Then when you continue to travel on, there is a diminishing of the heat of the sun the further you get away from it. By the time you come to Venice, which is our closest neighbor inward to the sun, Venice is 67,240,000 miles from the sun. Its temperature is 864 degrees Fahrenheit. Still hotter than Houston in the summertime. Amen. Go another 25 million miles or so and you come to earth. We are 92,960,000 miles from the sun and our average earth temperature, surface temperature, are you ready? It's 57.2 degrees. That's our average temperature. I personally don't want to live where it's 57.2 degrees. I like Houston where it's hot. I am so glad God did not call me to pastor in St. Sue, Minnesota or someplace. I have been in northern Scandinavia during the middle of winter when the, it is so cold. The snow is stacked up to the roofs. At the middle of the winter, there are two months when the sun doesn't even come out. I'm not talking about hidden by the clouds. I mean, it's not there. It's dark 24-7 for two months. Then in the summer, it's so far north up there that for two months, the sun doesn't go down. It's weird. 2.30 in the morning, the sun is still shining. I'm not making that up. I have gotten up and hung my blanket over the window so I could go to sleep. There's something freaky about that. I don't think humans are supposed to live in that kind of an environment. Seriously. Amen. I love Houston. I love my city. Amen. I do. However, I will observe that yesterday morning when I landed in Amsterdam, I turned on my phone, and I've got a little app on my iPhone that has the temperature, and of course, I had to look and see what's going on in Houston, and it said 30 degrees. I said, God, please let it warm up before I get home, amen. 
I don't want to live where it's cold. And the further you get from the sun, the colder it gets. Until by the time you reach Neptune, which is 2,798,000,000 miles from the sun, the average surface temperature is a minus 361 degrees. That is cold. You go from 27 million at the core to 10 million at the surface to 864 million on Venice to 57.2 on Earth to 368 degrees below zero minus degrees on Neptune. In similar fashion, people who stay close to God live in fullness of joy. Those who drift away Joy declines and diminishes. And here's what you need to know. In the month of January, we're turning our face to move back toward God. And this is what David did. Because God doesn't come out there and get us and make us come back. Like Israel, he'll let you stay on the other side of the wall. You won't ever get to see the beauty. But if you get hungry enough, even if you aren't a member of the right family, you can come into the presence of God and be where God is. As I close, David, and making God the center of his life, and in staying close to God, learned early on, that when you make God your source, it takes care of your adversaries for you. When you're out here, you got to deal with your own adversaries. But when you're over here by him, they don't get to you unless they mess with him first. And there's none of them big enough willing to try to take him on. Come on, somebody in the building say amen this morning. Listen to David, of whom shall I be afraid? He goes on to say, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Whom shall I fear? David knew fear was immobilizing. It is paralyzing. It is terrifying. Fear is a destructive force. And David said, as long as I stay close to God, I don't need to be afraid. I stay here in the presence of God. But if I drift out here where it's cold, I'm going to have to face my adversaries by myself. Secondly, David said, in staying close to God, that he was learning that with God as his source, he did not need to be moved by the circumstances that inevitably arise in everyone's life. Listen to what he said. When the wicked came against me to eat up my flesh, my enemies and my foes, they stumbled and fell. God flips it around. He does a divine reversal. Everything that was meant to harm you ends up blessing you. Everything that was meant to tear you down ends up lifting you up. Everything meant to destroy you ends up promoting you. Though an army may encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war may rise against me, in this will I be confident. In the middle of a depression, I am confident. He wasn't moved by circumstances. And staying close to God, David finally found that by choosing to seek God rather than focusing on his problems and his enemies, it changed the outcome. He made God his source, and that caused his circumstances to not prevail against him and changed the outcome of what would have otherwise been a disastrous and horrible outcome. There is no way a man facing a lion ought to come out of that by himself alive. No way facing a bear should a man come out of it unscathed? No way should a 16-year-old boy 
face a giant and cut off his head with his own sword. But when you make God your source, you have breakthroughs that can't be explained. No way should your company explode. I'm going to talk to you where you're at right now. No way should the little business you're struggling to build explode when everybody else is struggling, but you made God your source. No way should you get promoted when there are those that are there that have been there longer than you have, but you get promoted anyway. No way should your cancer that should have taken your life be healed, and you don't know why. I can tell you why. When you make God your source, the outcome is always different. 